the argument has been made that a Christian can do wrong things, can do things that displease God, can even violate the law of God, but that none of these are sin for the Christian. It's somewhat, whenever I hear it, and really there are two directions that people will go with this kind of, um, the way people take this passage. And one is uh, with just a uh, straight up sinless perfection that Christians stop sinning. They don't sin anymore. And the other is somewhat of a semantic game, and we've uh, had experienced that here recently. So he cannot sin, <clears throat> according to the semantic game here, uh, he cannot sin doesn't mean that he has somehow lost the ability to do things that God would consider sinful or that God would be offended by, but that when he, when the Christian commits those kinds of things, God doesn't see it as sin. God doesn't call it sin. That's the argument that has been made here. All right, so understand um, if, if, for instance, a Christian steals, that's not sin. God doesn't call that sin. That's the way it's been argued and presented. It's wrong, but it is not sin because he is a Christian, and a Christian cannot sin. That's, again, this, I'm, not, I'm not arguing that. I'm telling you what has been argued here. And this because he's been born of God so that wrong deeds, missteps, moral failures, and so forth no longer qualify as sin. He cannot sin because God doesn't consider it sin. God doesn't. God doesn't count it as sin. God might be displeased. He might chastise and punish and correct, but a sin is something, according to this way of thinking, a sin is something that only an unbeliever can commit. Now, <clears throat> I understand that the word sin is an ugly word. Um, we, we find regularly uh, in our witnessing, in our evangelism, that the world has lost the concept of sin. They have no idea about sin at all. They, you can talk about sin. They know what it means. They, they, they have a general idea of the meaning of the word, but they have no idea of sin as something detestable, something abominable, something that is wicked and evil. They don't really even have a concept of wicked or evil anymore. Uh, in our world. There just isn't uh, this idea even a sense of shame. Uh, there is, in fact, in our world, uh, more and more a sense of pride, thus Pride Month. Like we dedicate one-twelfth of the year to pride this morning over the vilest of sins. Uh, it is something to be paraded and promoted in our world today. So, <clears throat> it, still, 
sin does have a connotation to it. And the argument that has been made is that um, we've chosen the most uh, harsh, ugly, distasteful word in the English vocabulary to describe the wrongdoing that a person does, to describe his moral failures. And um, to which we are tempted to reply, and the problem is, um, moral failure is wicked. It is evil. It is abominable to God. Sin, if sin is in fact the worst word in the English language, it came by that reputation honestly. Because sin, the word sin, represents the worst kind of behavior and the worst kind of action and the worst kind of deeds that people do. That's sin right there. So, you know, honestly, if I was going to change words, I would try to find a word that is more harsh, that is more illustrative of how exceeding wicked and sinful our sin really is. We need to understand that. And again, this is an area, it is, it is a product of the time, the day, the age in which we live, where sin is diminished and sin is minimized and sin is treated as if it were just a casual mistake, an offhanded, you know, I just had an off day here and I messed up. And that's all, it's just a slip up. It's just a mistake. It's just a mild imperfection. But that's not the way God looks at it, my friend. That is not the way God looks at it. Not ever. When I do something that is immoral, something that is wicked, that is sin. My status with God doesn't change the nature of any act of disobedience on my part. My standing with God doesn't change the fact that that act of disobedience is still sin. It's still sin. That's what I'm saying to you. That's what needs to be said. It is important to note that the Bible has one word that it uses consistently for this. Now, of course, there is wickedness and there is evil and there is unrighteousness and so on. But the Bible consistently used, pardon me, uses the word sin. In the Greek New Testament, the word is hamartia, hamartia. It is used regularly, frequently in the New Testament. That word, all but one time, that word and the derivatives of that word are translated sin in the Bible. Sin translates the Greek word hamartia without exception in the New Testament. John chapter 8 verse 7 uses hamartano with the alpha privative. Otherwise, 
we have the word heroptoma, which is which means a side slip, like an unintentional error, uh, a, a, a fall or a failure. That would be a slip up, that kind of thing. Sometimes it has a moral connotation to it. Sometimes it does not have a moral con connotation. And that word is used two times, both in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1 and verse 7, chapter 2 and verse 5. The Greek word hamartia is always translated sin. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 7 is the only exception. Have I committed an offense in abasing myself that he might be exalted? Listen, we can say then that sin is an offense to God. All right? But hamartia is speaking about an offensive action or behavior which God calls sin. And I can add to that that God's churches for 2,000 years have consistently referred to it the same way, have not marked or, uh, or divided out offenses committed by unbelievers as opposed to offenses committed by believers and separated the two, has not treated them as separate classes of immorality. God has never done that. God's churches have never done that. Churches have spoken consistently to this. Faithful preachers, believers in Christ, have consistently believed this throughout New Testament history to the point where this has never been a controversial thing until just the last really 20 or 30 years where a segment of people, probably the most prominent uh, promoter of this way of thinking is uh, Billy Graham's grandson, Julian Chavidgen, who uh, began writing books like One Way Love and so on to, to show that God's love was unconditional, that he uh, chose you out to love you, and it doesn't matter what you do or don't do, he's committed to loving you, and nothing that you do or don't do can diminish his love for you in any way. You don't need to respond, you don't need to repent, you don't need to do anything. It's, it's really like somebody took this bag of all kinds of theological <laughs> ideas and uh, shook them up really good and dumped them out on the floor and kicked them around and scattered them a little bit. And that's kind of what came out of it with this. Of course, Julian Chavidjian has disgraced himself multiple times in multiple scandals and affairs and so on. And this is almost what you would expect, that a person who is busily promoting this kind of thing is carefully attempting to conceal what is really going on in secret in his life. <clears throat> but that being said, I, I come back to this and say that the church, really, God's churches have spoken with one voice uh, for 2,000 years on the subject of sin. It's never been excusable. It's never been given a pass. It's never uh, been diminished or minimized in any way. It's always been called what it is, 
It's always been called sin. Always. <clears throat> the Bible doesn't change terms between believers and unbelievers. Believers do not get a pass for their sin, nor does the Bible seek to diminish the offenses of our sin. If anything, we should be even more sensitive today. Now that we've received Christ as our Savior, we should be more sensitive and more careful about sin than what we were before. Surely what we were before. Because before, when you were dead in trespasses and sins, you lived without regard for God. You lived without regard for His law. You were not concerned what He thought about anything that you were doing at all. Now that you've received Christ, now that you have been made aware of the fact that your sins caused Jesus Christ to die on the cross, that your sins were laid on Jesus, and that the torture and torment of the cross was a response, was God pouring out his wrath on, your, on Christ because of your sin. That surely should give us a great sense of carefulness about doing those things, participating in those things that have caused God so much grief and pain. <clears throat> when we see the terrible effect of our sin on our Savior, and that has to be, in our minds, the most vivid account of the offense of your sin. When you think of that, there should be a great carefulness that I not be casual about my sin, that I not carve out a safe space where I can sin and not feel the guilt, the pain, the shame of my sin. That should be priority for us. As I said, if anything, when we see the effect of our sin on Christ, we should hate it more. We should invent an even harsher word to describe it. Rather than attempting to minimize the word or find a more tolerable word to describe it. But we certainly must not say that adultery would be sin for an unbeliever, but it is not a sin for a believer. This is a gross misuse of Scripture to draw such a conclusion. The proverb tells us, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. To any people. Sin is a reproach. You know, this is one of the things that the Bible makes very clear, abundantly clear, is that when it comes to our sin, God is no respecter of persons. He does not respect the person of the wise or the unwise. He does not respect the person of the believer or the unbeliever when it comes to sin. God is no respecter of persons. Even so, sin is a reproach to any people. Sin is something people commit, something we do that is contrary to God and hateful to Him. 
It is to misuse, to misappropriate all the wealth and all the goodness and all the riches that God has given to us. All the delights he's placed in the earth for man's pleasure. It is to say, God, you are not good to give us all these things to enjoy because you put restrictions on those things. You don't just let me enjoy it any way I want to. I think that this shows up the most clearly, most vividly when it comes to sexual sin and immorality because clearly this is a gift that God gave to man. He gave it to man in the beginning when he created Adam. He gave him a wife and all the sexual pleasures that would come with having a wife. And then God said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And God put restrictions on the sexual activity that was to take place between men and women. He limited it to men and women first. And he limited it to married men and women. But men, mankind has said, God, that's not good enough. I want to do it whenever I want, wherever I want, with whoever I want. I don't want you to tell me when, or when, I, when I can or cannot enjoy this. That's what I mean. It is taking the good gifts that God has given to us and saying, this is mine. You can't tell me what to do with it. You are the giver of all good things. But you have no right to restrict me in my use of these gifts. That is sin. That's sin. Plain and simple. I could illustrate it the same way with any other sin that we might commit. It all looks exactly like that. Saying... God, you've given us these good things, but you put too many restrictions on it. I'm not going to follow your rules for using these things. That's sin. Sin means to say that God's gifts are not good enough. That I need to be free to enjoy them my way, on my terms, without regard for any limitations, that God has placed upon me. And that's why sin is a reproach to any people, saved or unsaved. And again, I would argue that the reproach is greater to you when you've been set free from the bondage of sin. When the penalty of your sin has been laid on Jesus, and yet you go back to it. The thing that God saved you from, you go back to it. For you to then indulge the lust of your flesh and of your mind is to slap God in the face, to trample underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ, to treat it as an unworthy thing. So, let's take a look at this confusing passage here in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, and let's clear up some of the confusion about it. 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10. Uh, it says, whosoever committed sin transgresseth also the law, 
for sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Let's begin with a claim that has been made. Uh, it has been said that all sin is transgression of the law, but not all transgression of the law is sin. Now I will admit that logically, all sin is transgression is not logically equivalent to all transgression is sin. Those two statements are not logically equivalent to each other, just as if we say all women are humans, that is not logically equivalent to all humans are women. It also, those statements are not true either. But that doesn't mean that both statements cannot both be true at the same time. If I say all people are humans, I've made a true statement. And if I swap those two and say all humans are people, I have also made a true statement. Two true statements, not logically equivalent, but both true. I think we know that transgression of the law is sin. I don't think there's a question about that. Transgression of the law is sin. God wants us to know that sin itself is transgression of the law. Now, the Greek doesn't structure the statement exactly the same, but tells us that all those who commit sin also commit lawlessness, and sin is lawless living. Now, I'm giving you that uh, based on what the Greek wording in this. The Greek doesn't use that a word that's equivalent to transgression of the law, but the idea of transgression of the law means essentially to transgress is to step over the line. That's the idea of transgression, to step over the line. So the idea here is a lawlessness is saying there is no line that I will recognize. There is no line that I will honor I will do what I want to do. I will not be restrained in what I do. And God says that that attitude, that spirit is sin. Sin is to live lawlessly, to live as if there are no restrictions, to live as if God has not said, you shall do this, you shall not do that. That's what sin is. Sin, in other words, is to be a law unto yourself. Sin is to reject the authority that God has over you and to be your own boss, to be your own law, 
to be your own authority. That's what John is saying. The Greek word there that uh, is rendered here in our, in our verse as transgression of the law, the Greek word is anomia. Nomia, nomos, namos, is the Greek word for law. The ah, the alpha privative at the beginning of that word means no law, lawless, lawlessness. In other words, sin says, I have no authority other than my own desires, my own lust, the lust of my own mind. And so John reminds us that Jesus was revealed, was manifested to take away our sins, which is the reason given here in this verse, verse 5, the reason for us to turn from our sins. And John adds to that that in him is no sin. He alone is the sinless one. John's point in this passage is to show the evidence that Jesus has taken our sins away. And what follows are the marks that you have been born again, as opposed to a false professor. Now this is the point of 1 John. The entire book of 1 John is, John says it at the very beginning, that we might have fellowship with him. <clears throat> and surely our fellowship is with the Father, right? With God himself. So the idea is that you would have fellowship, and the way that you'll be able to have this fellowship is that you have assurance of your salvation. You are certain that you are saved. And so the book of 1 John gives probably the plainest presentation of assurance of salvation, what that means, what are the marks that you are born again, laid out for you in the book of 1 John. So here in 1 John chapter 3, he shows you what are the marks that you have been born again, that Jesus has taken away your sin. Here it is. Who is the one who abides in Christ? The one who does not sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Verse 6 says, Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Now, <clears throat> in that verse, the words abideth and sinneth are both present tense verbs, present indicative. In fact, the indicative means that this really has happened. Present tense, the present tense in the Greek is a continuous thing. Just as we, I mean, our present tense, you know, you always live in the present. You know that, right? Like, there, you cannot live in the past. I mean, you can be preoccupied with the past, but you can't live in the past. You can't. You can't. No matter how, you know, when we go back to uh, my hometown in Terre Haute, Indiana, my wife always makes snide comments about Terre Haute. And uh, just like spiteful things that she says about my hometown. And one of the spiteful things is that Terre Haute is a place that insists on never changing. It's true, actually. As painful as it is 
the same buildings on the same streets that were boarded up when I was a teenager are still boarded up today. Nobody's gone in and bothered to knock them down or tear them down or anything like that. They just stay boarded up forever. There are probably ghosts that live in there and they're probably keeping them in there. And those ghosts probably have just one tooth, like many of the people in Tarot. But anyway, I digress. Why was I saying that? It was a good illustration, too. Oh yeah, never changes, never changes. There are people in Terrebonne and all over the world who live in the past. I mean, like, it looks like they, they reached the 1970s and they never progressed past it, right? Their styles are still the same, their, uh, their uh, entertainment's still the same, the music's the same, all of that still frozen in time. Uh, that was the idea. Sometimes people will live a life that seems to be frozen in time, but still you live in the present. You don't live in the future. You don't live in the past. We always live in the present. The present tense, then, is a continuous tense. It is where you are living. It is what you are doing. It is what you are in the habit of doing, what you are in the practice of. And in fact, in this passage, the word committeth is used a number of times, and that word committeth can be practices. It has to do with doing, the work that you do, what you do. This is what you do. So when John here is talking about sin, he's talking about the practice. He's talking about what you do as a manner of life, as a way of life. So he says, <clears throat> whosoever abideth in him, that word abideth is the present tense, continuous, habitual, the practice of abiding in him, which is, of course, what you would expect. In fact, you would say, well, it can't be abiding if you're coming and going, if you're transient, right? Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. That word sinneth also is the present tense right there. Both mark what is characteristic of this life. Now, I'll point out to you, as has been pointed out, that other versions of the Bible translate this as makes a practice of sinning or practices sin and that this has been used as an argument against seeing sin as habitual but if you're King James only then you can't see it that way as the way that we're being told let me let me say this uh, about that all right first of all we don't reject outright whatever the other versions say like if the if the NIV says it it can't be right all right, we don't say that. Sometimes other versions get it right too. They do. This is not shocking. You should not be horrified to hear this. Wait a minute. You're saying they might be right sometimes? Yeah, I'm saying they are right sometimes with that. 
So we don't reject outright whatever the other versions say or reject it because the other versions say it. We examine all these things according to the standard that we have, which is the words that God gave in Greek and Hebrew. We can examine it that way. That is the standard for a right translation, a faithful translation, as opposed to an unfaithful one. And the Greek in this passage bears out that other translations have translated this correctly and perhaps at times more clearly. Otherwise, we either have to argue for sinless perfection or else we have to do what some have done and make it about the word sin itself. John is saying that a believer's faith is demonstrated by his practice, by his habitual action, not his extraordinary ones. The present tense verb shows continuous, habitual action, practice. It shows practice. Those who habitually abide in Christ are saved people who, as a manner of life, abide in Christ, they are saved people, okay? That's what John is saying here. And those who, as a way of life, live in sin, they show that they are unsaved people. That's what the Bible is saying here. A Christian, as a habit of life, is abiding in fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Sin may at times enter his life, but sin is the exception, not the rule. The unsaved person, as a habit of life, sins continually. And so John says, little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now again, that doeth righteousness is a present tense verb there, so it's the same thing. This is his practice. This is what he does. He does righteousness. Therefore, he is righteous, even as he, that is God, is righteous. He that committeth sin, now that committeth there, again, is the idea of practicing, of what you do as a manner of life, that this is your way of life here, is to sin. That's what John is saying there. Now, this is another place where those who want to say that we shouldn't use the word to describe sin, to describe our moral failures, the moral failures of Christians at least, will diverge from what the Bible is saying. The deception that John warns about is not that we are deceived because we call moral failures sin when Christians commit it. That's not how we're deceived. That's not what John is warning us about. He's not warning us not to be deceived into calling your moral failure sin. That's not what he's saying at all. Right? He is, again, he is showing you 
what it looks like when someone has been born again. This is how you tell. And he says that when you see a person whose manner of life contradicts his profession of faith, don't be deceived into thinking he's saved. Don't be deceived that way. That's what he's saying here. The deception is not the deception of calling sin, sin. The deception is in those who pretend to be followers of Christ, but who regularly indulge the lusts of their flesh and of their minds. John says, he that committeth sin is of the devil. A righteous character expresses itself in righteous conduct. Committeth, again, is a present tense verb. He that makes sin his business, he that makes sin his practice, is of the devil. John marks that person as still unsaved. His sinful propensities, issuing from his totally depraved nature, which he inherited from Adam, finds its ultimate source in the devil from hell who brought about the downfall of our first parents. And of course, the devil has been sinning continuously from the beginning. There's been no break. There's been no stopping. And those who live as a way of life, who live in sin, they are of the devil. That's what, that's what John is saying. No wonder then that those who indulge their flesh this same way are of the devil. They're just like him. And John here intentionally draws the line thick and dark so that you won't, there won't be, like, have you ever followed a trail and then the trail kind of ran out, like the woods got thick and there was a trail that was there on the ground, but it's so overgrown that you can hardly find it. <clears throat> John doesn't want you to run out of trail. He doesn't want you to come to a place where you can't discern the line. And so he is drawing the line very thick, very dark here. Whosoever is born of God, he said, doth not commit sin for his seed, that is, the seed of Christ, remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. Now there's the confusing statement. That's the one that throws us. Like, what do I do with that? I think that, honestly, many believers just skip over it. Just, I can't deal with that. I don't know what that's saying. I know that I still sin. I believe that I'm born again. But that's the kind of verse that causes us Concern, it causes us to be even sometimes a little bit afraid. So let me explain it. He cannot sin. This is what John is saying. He cannot sin because he is born of God. The key here is in the seed of God. That incorruptible seed that causes us to be born again. That incorruptible seed that Peter pointed to as the, the cause of our new birth. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. 
by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. By the way, Isaiah the prophet, when he said that initially, he gave the reason why the flower fades, why the grass withered. And that is because the Spirit of the Lord blows upon it. The, the Holy Spirit does the withering work, withering the flesh. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Because that seed remains in you. That's what John says. You do not sin. Now again, John is using present tense verbs here. He is not in the practice of sin. He doesn't do sin. And this is because, and by the way, John uses a marker of cause or reason here. This is because that incorruptible seed of the word of God remains in him. That remains is present tense. Again, that this is a habitual, a continual remaining in you. In fact, John goes so far as to say that he has this person who has been born of God, born again by means of the incorruptible seed of the word of God, this person has lost the power to live in sin. He has lost the ability to live in sin. He cannot do it. He cannot live that way anymore. That's what John is saying here. Again, he uses the present tense to habitually sin, to live sinfully. He cannot live sinfully. Before, he was dead in trespasses and sins. He was the servant of the one he was yielded to, and he was yielded to his flesh before. Now, though, he is alive to God. He has the power now to yield his members as instruments of unrighteousness. And not only the power, but also the desire. In this, the children of God are manifest. That's what John says. This is what reveals whether in fact you are born again or not. In this, the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Look, Jesus said it a different way. Jesus said, uh, straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life and many and few there be that find it, right? Broad is the path, broad is the way, wide is the path that leads to destruction and many there be that go in thereat. So in other words, what Jesus was saying, John is saying, that you can tell whether or not a person is born again by the path of their life. The way that they live. A person tells you that, you know, I'm born again. 
but they're harboring all kinds of secret sins. Look, I mean, I, I'm supposed to believe that. I, I'm not supposed to like do this sleuthing, um, hire a private investigator to go and check to see if you are engaged in nefarious activity. I'm not doing that, all right? But if it comes out that, in fact, your life has been a double life, then we have grounds to doubt and be doubtful that you're born again. Doesn't mean that you're not. The test will be in whether you repent or not. And that repentance will be what we talked about this morning. A great zeal to clear yourselves. A carefulness about it. All right? Because this is what God says. If you are born again, you cannot, you cannot be okay. You have lost the power to live that old life. You can't do it. And you can stumble and you can fall. And Satan is constantly trying to get you to fall into sin. But you can't live that way. You can't be okay with it. You want to get it right with God. You want to deal with it. So that is what the Bible is saying here. And I say this because sometimes people take what is the wording in 1 John 3 can be hard to navigate at times. And you can be confused and people will take that confusing language and use it to say something that the Bible never says, never would say, would not say. I'm saying to you, it is important that we understand that John is saying that, yes, you will continue to sin, but you will not continually live in sin. You will be overcoming. You will be winning victories. And so, Paul in Romans 7 shows us that the death of the old man with Christ, our old man crucified with Christ, so that the body of sin might be destroyed, as Romans 6 and verse 6 says it, that death of the old man with Christ puts us out of reach of the law. In this sense, that the law condemns us, the law exposes our sin and condemns us for it, and we are now out of reach of the law because there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Look with me at Romans chapter 7, and I want to go over this. I went over this uh, back a month or so ago, maybe a month and a half ago, and I want to go over it again and show you this. Romans 7 and verse 1 shows us that the law has dominion over a man as long as that man is alive. But because the old man is crucified with Christ, the marriage between the old man and the law is ended. The old man is out of the reach of the law because he's dead. It, the same will happen to you. Once you die, you're out of reach of the law. The law can no longer reach you. You now are, you're standing before God. But the law is no longer your judge. 
Paul concludes that we are the ones who have died. The law did not die. The old man died. And this allows us, in verse 4 of Romans 7, this allows us to be married to the one who is risen so that we can bring forth fruit to God. Verse 5, while we were in the flesh, the law worked one way in us, and that was to provoke our impulses to sin. It was an enticement. It's the enticement, the age-old enticement of the forbidden fruit. Now, whatever the law says you can't have is what you want to have. And so Romans 7, verse 5 and verse 8 remind us of that. It was kind of catalyst to do what the law forbid. Because again, our sinful, fallen nature responds to the law that way. It does. If we had never sinned, we can't even imagine the world that way. Right? But if, if and, and this will come to pass when we are redeemed, when we are made perfect, complete in Christ, when we stand before him complete, the law will no longer work on our flesh that way. If, let's say it this way. If it were possible for, for God, if God, or if it's possible for God, if, if this were to happen in your life right now, if God came in somehow and extracted all lust from your mind and from your heart, if he removed it all, then you would not be enticed by anything that you're enticed by now. The world would look very different. Everything would look very different. See, the sin of pornography, in fact, is caused by lust. If you were to remove lust, pornography would be a ridiculous activity. But it would certainly not stir up your lusts. So this is what the Bible is saying here. Because you were in the flesh, your flesh responds to the law by being enticed by whatever is forbidden. That's what Paul is saying. The law acts on the flesh to provoke. The law, Paul says, awakened in me a desire for the forbidden fruit. For the sheer reason that the fruit is forbidden. But by the death of the old man with Christ, we are delivered from the old administration of the law and find ourselves instead under the jurisdiction of the Holy Spirit. That's what verse 6 of Romans 7 tells us. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead, wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now, we shouldn't imagine that the Holy Spirit makes allowances for things that the, the, the law does not make allowances for. Just that the Holy Spirit does for us what the law could not do for us in that it was weak. Romans 8, verse 2, for the law and the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Go to Romans 8, verse 2 and look at it. For the law and the spirit of life in Christ Jesus have made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us 
who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So then what use is the law? It seems to me, at least in my unsaved, in my fleshly state, my old man was just continually tripped up by the law. That the sin, the, the law actually provoked me to sin. So what good then is the law? Good that you ask. At the very least, <clears throat> before we begin to view the law as if it were a bad thing, Paul reminds us that the law is good. Look at Romans 7 verse 12. Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. The law is good. The problem is not the law. The problem is my flesh. The problem is in fact the lust of my flesh. That's the problem. Was the law itself good but bad for me? Paul grapples with that question. Look at verse 13. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. And here we see the use of the law, the goodness of the law, the purpose of the law, but sin that it might appear sin. Working death in me by that which is good that sin by the commandments might become exceeding sinful. That's the point. See, the law works in your flesh to provoke it. I can't have it, but I want it. I didn't want it until the law said I couldn't have it, and now I want it. And because I want it, and I reach for it, and I go get it, that puts me under the condemnation of the law, under the sentence of death. What was good, the law, is my death. Is that the point? No. The point is to show you how terrible sin really is. That's the point. The point is to take that word sin and make you shudder at it. Make you see how wicked it is. <clears throat> A few chapters before this, Paul was more direct about the role of the law in the sinner's life in Romans 3.19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law shows you that it's sin, and that sin is exceeding sinful. And this is consistent with our experience, both with our sinful nature and with the law. Because, you know, it's one thing to be doing what you know you shouldn't be doing. But then a police officer pulls up with his lights 
going, you know, ruin. And now, it's not just that you knew you shouldn't have been done doing that. Now you know that you're cooked. You're in trouble. That's the law. Doesn't the law stand as a warning against sin? And when I have sinned, doesn't the law stand in condemnation against me? <clears throat> and yet, Romans 8 and verse 1 reminds us that there is therefore now no condemnation to them who which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So is there any value of the law to the believer? Has salvation turned the law into a statue, into a monument, a toothless reminder of the old administration? Paul would say, God forbid. Absolutely not. Look at Romans 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Why is it good? Because it teaches me to cry out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the point. But I haven't made my point yet. My point is that the law is not a rival to grace. The law is not an opponent to grace. The law is, in fact, a friend to grace. Paul describes the law as our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. That is the grace of the law, that it plainly shows our guilt. No varnish, no pretension, no powdered sugar on the dung heap, as we've said. <clears throat> and that's why we must Fight against sin. Flee youthful lust. Resist Satan. All the things that God says to us over and over and over and over in his word about sin. We must do that. We must fight. We must war against our flesh. We must not yield. We must not, you know, the old 70s doctrine of let go and let God and it sounded really fresh and exciting and it got a lot of people in a lot of trouble because God did not ever intend for you to sit back passively waiting for him to deliver you from your lusts. God has armed you and equipped you so that you can fight against your lusts and overcome you are not slaves anymore. You are not in bondage anymore to the lust of your flesh.